Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, March 15th, 2011, the Ides of March, the day in which Rob Bell's book officially has been released. And our entire program will be dedicated to this subject, if you would. I'll give you details here in a minute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. Uh, The latest craziness is coming from, well, none other than... Rob Bell. Uh, Some people say that he orbits on the outer ring of the emergent universe, and uh, I think he's somewhere a little bit closer than the outer ring. He has had uh, Doug Padgett and Brian McLaren at his pulpit. He has Shane Hips teaching all kinds of weird kind of universalism type of stuff uh, there at at Mars Hill Bible Church, and we've chronicled that and uh, noted that here at Fighting for the Faith. And today what we're going to do is we're going to... uh, dedicate the entire program to singularly dealing with, listening to, and commenting on last night's live event that uh, Rob Bell did where he was interviewed by Lisa Miller of uh, Newsweek Magazine. She's the religion editor of Newsweek Magazine. And uh, Rob Bell said some stuff in there that is absolutely, wow, you've got to hear it to believe it. And uh, because it's the Ides of March and the day in which his book is released, we're going to uh, spend some time listening to Bell, and we're going to spend some time in the biblical text, as well as some of the early, I mean, really early church fathers, uh, to test some of the claims that Bell is making, uh, well, uh, the claims that he made last night while he was uh, in New York City, uh, for this uh, live event that was streamed on the internet live, and you can actually watch it again. If you go to the Love Wins website, I think they have the actual video itself there. So if you want to see everything, you can do that, but you, you're going to have to get on Google and look for the official Love Wins website, and uh, they have a media section there that you can go to, and you can play it either on demand, or they, they're they also playing it on continuous loop. So um, with that, well, I'm not going to play any intro music today. Uh, we've kind of done that to death. So what we're going to do is we're going to just dive right into the lecture, and I'm going to comment ap- accordingly, 
and you know we're going to pause you know uh, to pay our bills at our normal spots. But this is not our light version. This program actually took uh, quite a bit of time to uh, properly prepare for. But I want to get it into uh, the. Uh, I want to get it into your. Um, out on the web so that people can hear it and it can get into the conversation. So uh, without any further ado, uh, here's the guy introducing Rob Bell and Lisa Miller. Here we go. So first tonight I wanted to just introduce um, our, our uh, uh, esteemed journalist and author, also HarperCollins author. That's Lisa Miller of Newsweek. Uh, she's been the award-winning religion writer at Newsweek since 2000, and she regularly reports and, and writes on spirituality and belief and the intersections of all those things with politics and sex and all the other issues of our day. Uh, Lisa, Lisa helped uh, to launch one of the most innovative and, and, and one of the largest online global conversations about religion called On Faith, which is run by the Washington Post. Uh, she wrote and published the book I just mentioned, which is just now out in paperback. I'm holding it up, brand new hot off the press. Heaven, Our Enduring Fascination with the Afterlife. Entertainment Weekly says, a brainy, engaging book. What Miller ultimately concludes may surprise you. It does. Surprise me. Um, she, uh, before she was at the um, the, at Newsweek, she was at the Wall Street Journal, she was at the New Yorker, the Harvard Business Review, and Self Magazine. Lisa lives here in New York and uh, with, her, with her husband, and they have one daughter. And then, for our guest of honor this evening, the brand new book, again, hot off the press, uh, Rob Bell, who many of you know and I suspect is or the, the reason that many of you are here. There's a little video that was leaked about two weeks ago you might have seen by now. Lots of others around the world have. Um, so, so... Rob is, uh, you know, I'm going to read a quote first. The New York Times calls, says, Rob Bell is a central figure for his generation and for the way that evangelicals are likely to do church in the next 20 years. He is, uh, as many of you know, the founding pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's the author of five books. Love Wins is his fifth book. Most notably before this is a book maybe many of you have read called Velvet Elvis. He's also appeared in a series of best-selling short films called Numas. Uh, Rob and his wife live in Grand Rapids, and they have three children. So, without much more delay, I want to introduce them both to you. Come on out, guys. Thanks for being here, everyone. Stand up and give oh, a yeah. talk. You're going to give a little small sermon. Before I'll do that. I just wanted to get comfortable. No, okay. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so great that you are here. It's such an honor, um, a privilege to be with you uh, tonight. Just a few uh, things before we get rolling. Okay, now this, I just want to interrupt here to let you know that I will be um, interjecting quite a bit of data even before he's done with this very short uh, introduction, you're going to need your Bible, so uh, grab them if you got them. I believe that God is love. And I believe that Jesus came to show us this love, to give us this love, to teach us about this love so that we could live in this love and then we could extend it to others. Okay, now stop. <clears throat> Notice where he starts. I believe God is love. 
I believe this is credo. This is this is a creed. I mean, if we were in, you know, if this was spoken in Latin, he, this would be a creed that he is speaking. I believe God is love. This is Rob Bell's new creed. Okay, he's going to ground this purely in philosophical thought, um, and what he does with the Bible is wow. Now, truly, Scripture does reveal that God is love. And that love is defined very specific ways, okay? Um, For instance, uh, we learn in, uh, I think it's Romans chapter 5. In fact, let's start there. Let's uh, start in Romans chapter 5, okay? God's love is clearly defined for us in Scripture. And it's not an abstract concept. It's not a philosophical concept. This is something that is defined by what Jesus has done for us. And as you're listening to Rob Bell tonight, you have to listen for not only what he says, but what he doesn't say. In fact, what he doesn't say is almost more important than what he does say. So he starts off with God is love, Jesus reveals this love, and all of this is talking in abstraction. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified or declared righteous by faith, Paul writing to Christians, he says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now that peace is not offered to everybody, just so you know. It's that peace exists where people have been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But we'll get to that in a minute. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, now these ideas that Paul is laying out here in Romans chapter 5 are not um, isolated. No, consistently, beginning with Jesus himself, the Christian message teaches that we are by nature dead in trespasses and sins and by nature at war with God that this enmity begins when Adam and Eve rebel against God in the Garden of Eden. This is what the Scripture teaches. Now, when it, we talk about salvation, the question is salvation from what? Well, Paul says right here in Romans 5, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified, declared righteous by Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, it's important as you as you are listening 
to Rob Bell tonight. As you're listening to him lay out his um, his theology, and that's the right way of putting it. This is his theology. The reason why he's getting so much media is because he's come up with something new. And he's going to say, well, other people have said this. Yeah, but uh, the reason why this is so strange is because this is not the way American evangelicals have been speaking. Why? Because American evangelicals understand that we are saved from the wrath of God. Now, if you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of John chapter 3 so that you know that I'm not just speaking here um, out of my own uh, out of my own ideas but i want you to read i want you to read along with me as i read the account of nicodemus talking with jesus in john chapter 3 i'm going to start um i'm going to start at verse 9 nicodemus said to jesus how can these things be talking about the importance of being born again jesus answered him are you the teacher of israel and yet you do not understand these things well truly truly i say to you we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony if i had told you earthly things and you do not believe how can you believe if i tell you heavenly things no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven who is the son of man And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should become exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. And if you um, fast forward to the end of this chapter, we read, starting at verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand, and whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, all of this is consistent with what Jesus himself taught. We just read some of the stuff that Jesus taught, and I would like you to flip over to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to start at verse 24. I read, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, 
then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, this is a parable. Everything here is in symbolic language that has to be decoded. And it just so happens that Jesus decoded all of the symbols in this parable that he told. If you skip over to the same chapter, Matthew 13, starting in verse 36, we read, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, that's Jesus, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, that would be Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man, Jesus, will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let them hear. Now, in case you missed it, verse 47, same chapter, Jesus tells another parable just like it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad, so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them, the evil, into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the idea here is this. This whole idea, the, 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 the primary person who taught on hell and judgment and eternal punishment, that would be Jesus himself. Now, as you're listening to Rob Bell, notice how he never mentions sin, never mentions the wrath of God, never mentions God's justice, never mentions any of the words that Jesus says in these passages at all. And instead, we've got some kind of a weird non-repent, there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness of sins. It's it's kind of a weird hodgepodge of things that is going on here, yet if you look at what Jesus commanded his disciples to do right before he was uh, to ascend into heaven, Luke chapter 24, verses 45 through 48, record the words of Jesus and what, what happened. Here's what it says. It says, Then he, Jesus, opened their minds so that they could understand the Scripture. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Okay? Now, so here's the idea. There's, you know, Jesus tells his disciples to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. As you're listening to Rob Bell, keep this in your mind, and I'll remind you of it along the way. Hopefully I'll remember to do that. Notice what's missing. No sin, no wrath of God, no repentance, no forgiveness of sins, none of that, none of it. And uh, instead, we've got something completely different. So with that, we're going to uh, listen to Rob Bell a little bit more, and I will chime in accordingly. 
the first people who heard this message responded with, well, now that's good news. And, and I believe that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> I believe our world desperately needs good news. When you hear the word Christian, what words come to mind? When you hear the word Christian, do you immediately think, oh yeah, the people who never stop talking about God's love for everybody. Or do a number of other images and associations come up? And I believe there are moments when we have to return to our roots and we have to acknowledge that perhaps in some ways we've lost the plot along the way. Okay, now this is an important thing that he's saying right here. This is critical. Okay, this is in his book. This is in the preface to it. And what he's basically saying is is that this is a claim that Christianity has gone off the rails. We've lost sight of what the real plot is, and we need to go back to the roots of Christianity. Okay, this is a testable claim. The question, you know, and, and basically this is real simple. When you go back into the writings of the earliest church fathers, okay, if you have a copy of the Antonician Fathers, uh, volume one, okay, the earliest Christian writers, this uh, Polycarp, Ignatius, both Polycarp and Ignatius were both disciples of the Apostle John, okay, the uh, the beloved disciple, the uh, author of the Gospel of John and First, Second, and Third John, that guy. Um, so what happens is, is that if you go back into the earliest writings of the earliest Christian church fathers, do they sound like Rob Bell? Or do they sound more like what we read in Matthew and met, read in Luke and what we read the Apostle Paul saying in Romans, talking about being saved from the wrath of God and the eternal fire and the fiery furnace? This is a testable claim. So, I know you don't have the ability to follow along here, but I did spend some time this afternoon just doing a survey uh, from the first volumes of the, uh, of the uh, Antonician Fathers. And Polycarp, I, I want to we'll start with Polycarp, who is an apostle of, uh, not an apostle, he's a disciple of the Apostle John. Here's what Polycarp wrote regarding Christian martyrs, people who were being murdered for confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, and how they were able to suffer the things that they were suffering, what was on their minds as they were being martyred, says Polycarp, and they, looking to the grace of Christ, despised all the torments of this world and redeeming themselves from eternal punishment. For this reason, the fire of their savage executioners appeared cool to them, for they kept before their view escape from that fire which is eternal and and never shall be quenched, and look forward with the eyes of their heart to those good things which are laid up for such as endure such things, which ear hath not heard, nor eye neither seen, nor have entered into the heart of man, but were revealed by the Lord to them." So according to Polycarp, who witnessed many people being martyred for the faith and who later himself would be martyred for the Christian faith, told us that the reason why the Christians were able to endure it is because they themselves had been redeemed from eternal punishment and from and that the fires of the executioners looked cool compared to the fires of hell, the eternal fire. 
And he wrote this at the beginning of the first century. So if Rob Bell is right and uh, Christianity has been hijacked, that the story has been hijacked, and, and that we need to get back to our roots, um, then why is it that the earliest Christian writers like Polycarp mention the eternal fires of hell in their writings? Ignatius, who is also a disciple of the Apostle John, in his epistle, chapter 16, by the way, he died in 107 AD, so this was written late in the first, uh, late in the first century, um, did I say uh, Polycarp was early? Yeah, Polycarp's late first century too. But here, here's what we read: he, talking about uh, the fate of uh, of false teachers. Ignatius writes. He says, "Do not err, my brethren. Those that corrupt families shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If then those who do this as respects the flesh have suffered death, how much more shall this be the case?" with any one who corrupts by wicked doctrine the faith of God, for which Jesus Christ was crucified. Such a one who has become defiled in this way and shall go away into everlasting fire, and so shall everyone that hearkens unto them. Ignatius, who again is one of the disciples of the Apostle John, says that false teachers will go away into everlasting fire. So Rob Bell is making the claim that we need to get back to our roots. We need to the Christian that the Christian plotline has been hijacked. Well, if that's the case, if it's been hijacked, we should be able to go back to the earliest Christians and hear the same things that Rob Bell is saying. But we don't. When we go back to the earliest Christians, we don't hear the same things Rob Bell is saying. We hear the same things that the Christian church has been saying all along, and especially what evangelicals have been teaching. By the way, Irenaeus, uh, late 2nd century, this was written probably about 180 um, A.D., in his book about heresies uh, that he wrote against the Valentinian Gnostics, he, he listened to what he says the Christian faith is. In uh, Book 1, Chapter 10, Irenaeus writes, The church, though dispersed through our whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She, the church, believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and, and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Jesus Christ, Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets and the dispensations of God, and the advents and the birth from a virgin, and the passion and the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension into heaven in flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, and of his future manifestation, his future coming from heaven in glory of the Father, to gather all things in one and to raise up anew all flesh of the whole human race, in order that to Christ Jesus our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible God, every knee would bow in things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess to him that he should execute his judgment towards all, that he may send spiritual wickedness and the angels who transgressed and became apostates together with the ungodly and unrighteous and wicked and profane among men into everlasting fire. But may in the exercise of his grace confer immortality on the righteous, the holy, and those who have kept his commandments and persevered in his love, uh, at some from the beginning of their Christian course and others from the date of their repentance, and may surround them 
with everlasting glory. Hmm. Really early on, the uh, Christians seemed to talk a lot about hell and everlasting fire. And the disciples of the disciples who were writing letters seemed to be mentioning it. And then you've got people fighting heresies and mentioning what the Christian faith is, and it comes up in the summaries. And when you think of the Nicene Creed, what is the Nicene Creed? And we believe that Jesus will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. But we hear nothing of this judging God. We hear nothing of sins. We hear nothing of the eternal fires from Rob Bell. But yet he's saying that we need to get back to our roots, that the, hi- that the narrative, that the plot line has somehow been hijacked. But if that's, if that's the case, if the plot line has been hijacked, why is it that the early church fathers sound nothing like Rob Bell? Could it possibly be that Rob Bell is the one who's trying to hijack the Christian plot? Now, I want to give you uh, another, uh, uh, just something else I want to con- you to consider. Um, I want to read again just a short, brief quote from something Rob Bell said, and then I'm going to play for you an audio soundbite from the late Dr. Walter Martin, who, by the way, doesn't have a skin in this game. In case you all don't know, Walter Martin has been dead for 22 years. So Walter Martin... He He's never even heard the name Rob Bell. He has nothing whatsoever uh, that uh, you know against Rob Bell per se. He doesn't even have a skin in this game. But there's something that Dr. Walter Martin said uh, that I think is worth passing along to you, and I need to give you the context. Yesterday on the program, I read, read a section from uh, uh, pages 142 to 146 in, uh, in this new book, Love Wins. There's a quote I want you to hear. I, I, again, there's, there's so many problems with this book, I can't even begin to convey them all. But here's what we got. There is an energy in the world, a spark, an electricity that everything is plugged into. The Greeks call it zoe. The mystics call it spirit. And Obi-Wan Kenobi called it the force. How does the sun give off that much energy and still yet regenerate itself at that same time? How do bees know how to take the pollen from that flower over there and put it over there? Why does my lawn have brown patches, etc., etc.? This energy, this spark, this electricity that pulses through all of creation sustains it, fuels it, and keeps it going, growing, evolving, reproducing, and making more. Now, this might sound like it's a harmless thing that... uh, Rob Bell is saying, but I would like to quote to you, I, I'm going to play a, a soundbite from Dr. Walter Martin well before his death in the 70s sometime, was uh, commenting on the theology of Star Wars. And uh, I want you to listen to what he says. And as you are listening to the rest of this audio from Rob Bell, ask yourself this question. Who does Rob Bell sound more like? Jesus in the text that I've read to you from the apostles and from the uh, eyewitness testimony about Jesus and the early church fathers uh, quotes that I just quoted to you? Or does he sound more like what Dr. Martin is critiquing here in this soundbite? Listen in. Now, how many of you saw Star Wars? Be honest now. Nobody's going to report you. Right? The Force be with you. You got that? Remember that? The Force be with you? Right, George Lucas, who wrote it and produced and directed, George Lucas is a New Ager. And George Lucas is teaching New Age philosophy throughout the entire film. And he's teaching you that there's the dark side of the force, Darth Vader, and then there's the light side of the force, 
uh, Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi. And the Force is with you. Let yourself go. Forget reason. Forget logic. Forget everything. Just wing it intuitively and the Force will be with you. The only problem is that the Force has an evil side and a good side. And this is right out of Hinduism. Good and evil are two sides of the same coin. But in Christianity and the Judeo-Christian revelation, evil is a result of rebellion against God and must be judged. Not so in Hindu philosophy. You work out your own salvation in Hinduism by going through cycles of reincarnation. And you pay for all the sins of the past in each succeeding reincarnation. So the New Age movement is characterized by the following things. Okay, now listen. Universal salvation for everybody. Secondly, an impersonal concept of God. Thirdly, a Christ consciousness, which is the divinity of all of us. Fourthly, sin dealt with by reincarnation, but you don't call it sin. And the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. But it comes through the Lord Maitreya. It comes through the philosophy of Hinduism. It does not come through the second advent of Jesus Christ. Okay, now stop right there. Now I understand what I'm basically saying is, is that, Chris, are you saying that there's some kind of a connection between Eastern religious thought and Rob Bell? Answer, yes. Spend some time in the footnotes of Rob Bell's previous books, and you will find that he has basically made it clear that there's a book— that is um, foundational to his thinking. The name of the book is A Brief History of Everything by Ken Wilber. The publisher of this book is Shambhala. Shambhala. The publisher of the book is Shambhala. Uh, Ken Wilber is a Buddhist in his thinking. Now, I understand that this is quite a, a stretch. And the reason why I'm doing this is because Rob Bell himself is on record of saying that this book, A Brief History of Everything, was something that was eye-opening, uh, a book that he had to work his way through that opened his eyes and gave him a new way of thinking, okay? And I am absolutely making the claim here that Rob Bell's gospel and his ideas are far more in line with Eastern religious thought than they are with anything to do with Christianity. He's the one who's saying the plot line has been hijacked. My claim is, is that he's the one doing the hijacking. Let me again play for you what Walter Martin said were the, the basic philosophical tenets of New Age Eastern thought, and, uh, and then we'll take a break, and when we come back, listen for these things as we play Rob Bell's uh, work today. Here we go. And you pay for all the sins of the past in each succeeding reincarnation. So the New Age movement is characterized by the following things. Universal salvation for everybody. That would be Rob Bell. Secondly, an impersonal concept of God. And I would make the case that there's there's a good way. There, you can go into this book, and there's even an imp that's what he did regarding Jesus. That's what I just read. Some kind of an impersonal concept regarding God. And, uh, you know, it, again, those are that go to page 144 of his book and begin reading at the bottom. And you read it in context. He says, he says, there is an energy in the world 
a spark and electricity that everything is plugged into. The Greeks called it the Zoe, the mystics call it spirit, and Obi-Wan called it the force. This energy and spark and electricity that pulses through all of creation sustains it, fuels it, and keeps it going, growing, evolving, reproducing, making more. That sounds more like an impersonal deity than a personal deity to me. Thirdly, a Christ consciousness, which is the divinity of all of us. Fourthly, sin dealt with by reincarnation, but you don't call it sin. Now, in this particular case, I don't think we can say that Rob Bell believes in reincarnation. I haven't quite seen anything to sustain that. But if you're to take his book literally, that there are consequences to sin. And, uh, and so the idea is, is that there's going to be some people who, for a temporary amount of time, are going to experience a very intense pruning. These are concepts that Bell talks about in his book. Um, it's not Christ suffering for our sins. It's, other, it's you suffering for your sins. And rather than on the, being on the karmic wheel, it's, it's in some kind of a purgatorial idea of hell. We continue. And the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. But it comes through the Lord Maitreya. It comes through the philosophy of Hinduism. It does not come through the second advent of Jesus Christ. Okay, we'll pause right there, and we'll continue with Rob Bell's uh, lecture from, well, question and answer period from last night as we work our way through this, uh, through this lecture. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Welcome to Build-A-God, how can I help you? Hello, I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you! Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? 
You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes! My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent! Excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god! Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, people coming up with their own theologies and then saying that the Christian church has been hijacked and that's why their theology isn't around today is, well, you can, you can test that. You should. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, so here's your job, okay? We've spent time time listening to Jesus. We've spent time listening to the apostles. We've spent time listening to some of the quotes from the earliest of the early Christian church fathers. And all of them talk about the wrath to come. They talk about Jesus coming in glory, talk about the separation of the evil and the wicked, and the wicked being punished and judged and their sentence being eternal fiery furnace, fire, eternal hell, things of that nature, okay? 
And we just listened to Dr. Walter Martin from a, 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 a video soundbite where he was talking about the New Age movement. And now uh, he, here's the deal. The question is, is that based on what you heard, you've heard so far, listen carefully now to Rob Bell. Who does he sound more like? Who does he sound like he's more in tune with? Does he sound like he's more in tune with Jesus, the apostles, and the writings of the early church fathers? Or does he sound like he's more in tuned with the things that Walter Martin was warning people about 20-something, 30-something years ago regarding the New Age movement? And, the uh, and uh, well, you, you get what I'm saying. So let's continue. Here we go. And that we need to return to the simplicity of God is love and God sent Jesus to show us this love, that we might know this love, that we might extend this love to others. Now, I... Uh, I never set out to be controversial. (laughs) Dramatic pause. I actually don't think it's a noble goal. I don't I don't think I don't think that God honors it when people set out to be shocking or dangerous or provocative. My interest is in what's true and where is the life and where is the heart and, and what inspires. And if that happens to stir up a few things, which I'm told it does from time to time, that's something I accept. But what's interesting to me is the conversation. What compels me is that for thousands of years, people have been conversing about what matters most. The Bible itself records this cacophonous conversation. You have laments and you have poems and you have people arguing with each other. You have people shaking their fists at the heavens. You have people hearing. You have people speaking. You have people singing. You have people writing letters. You have people recording what happened. You have people passing along all of these fragments and all these ideas and all of these words of encouragement and hope and conviction. And and, and so... Like when we gather here, it is an ancient, holy thing that we are doing when we take part in this conversation that has been going on across the ages. Uh, I have lobbed a book into this conversation, which uh, releases tomorrow, but I throw this book into the conversation with this awareness that it is, it is one more voice and that every voice matters when we are talking about the things that matter most. And, and so in some ways, I'm not saying anything new. The- okay, now, this is kind of a, a lame argument, and I'm going to explain to you what's going on here. He sets it up here, but he develops it a little bit further. I'm not saying anything new, and somehow that's that is this basically means that, oh, Christians have been saying this stuff all along. You know, um, and uh, and he basically just because somebody ancient may have said something similar doesn't mean that this is what the scriptures teach. And this is kind of where he begins to lay foundation regarding what is orthodox Christianity and what isn't, because he's painting himself here as an orthodox Christian. Now, let, let, let me let me give you a similar argument. I'll change the subject, if you would. Let's pretend that I decided that I was going to, you know, resurrect the Arian heresy and and that I was going to begin tell I was going to put out a brand new book about the about who Jesus is and I and and, and basically engage in deconstructing questions questions that deconstruct the deity of Christ 
and ideas of the Trinity. And in its place, I begin to rebuild Jesus as, well, the first and greatest of God's creation. Um, and that I liken Jesus to a godlike creature, but he's not really God. And, and I begin doing things like this. And it would get a lot of play. And the, the reason why is because, well, God, that's not what Christians have been saying about Jesus all along. And I said, well, listen, I'm not teaching anything new. No, no, no. There's been people in the Christian story that have been talking like this. You can find it in the past. It's There's there's plenty of people in the greater scope of the Christian conversation that have said similar things. And uh, and you, you go, oh, oh, well, if it's been around for a while, I guess it must be okay. You know, because what I would be doing there is say, I'd be teaching the very ancient and old heresy known as the Arian heresy. Just because somebody has said it a long time ago doesn't mean the person who said it was right, that they were correct. Pelagius was an ancient heretic. And if you quote him today and say, oh, well, listen, the Christians have been talking like this, you know, all the way back to the fourth and fifth centuries, you would not be correct. There's, there was a heretic named Pelagius who spoke like that. And yes, it's ancient and it's old, but that doesn't mean it's true. And so what he's doing here, this is, he's redefining orthodoxy and he's doing it by basically saying, I haven't written anything new here. There are people who are in the Christian tradition with, you know, if you take the broadest definition of Christian tradition, you can find guys who've said similar things to what I'm saying. Yeah, that is not how you define orthodoxy, but that's what he's starting to do here is to begin to redefine orthodoxy to not mean correct doctrine, sound doctrine in what the church has taught, but redefining orthodoxy basically meaning that that people who called themselves Christians said similar things along the line, regardless of the fact that they were thrown out of the church. That doesn't matter. It's just that they were old and they were there. They were part of the ongoing conversation. These ideas and these discussions and trying to wrestle with these questions and come up with answers and explanations that might actually give us life and help guide us and give us hope and help us know God better and be more sort of authentic followers of Jesus. This is something that's been going on for thousands of years, and I celebrate it. And the fact that you are here tonight and you are in on the discussion, I think, is a beautiful thing. Are you with me now? So, thank you. No, I'm not. How's that? Okay. Okay. Hi, Rob. Hello. Um, According to polls, 81% of Americans believe in heaven. And according to a poll that Newsweek did 10, 8 or 10 years ago, 70% of those believers think of heaven as a real place, by which I think they mean a location, a geographical location. So I'm going to pose it to you. Is heaven a real place, a geographical location that is not right here where we are right now? I think heaven is a real place. I think it exists. I sat with a man last year who was a couple days from dying of cancer. He'd been fighting serious cancer for years. And so he's moments from taking his last breath. And he kept saying, it was very, very clear and lucid, he kept saying, if only people know, if only people knew, if only they could get it. Well, well what? That peace and joy and the stillness and calm with everything being all right 
is available. It's available here. It's available now. I just wish people... And his body is like moments from saying, I'm done. So my experience has been, we bump up against this reality all the time. And, and we bump... Get, heaven is a reality. Okay. Bump up against people who are experiencing it. Do I think there's a place with like streets of gold and everybody has a Ferrari? Um, that probably has more to do with cartoons than it does with anything. Yeah. So, a, like in the Middle Ages, the monks made maps with heaven somewhere. Right. Like somewhere on the map. Like over there or yeah. like down there. Or yeah. There. Could you, can you, is there a secret door? Is there a way to... Well, what's, what I find really fascinating is Jesus turns the whole discussion upside down because he comes from a very sort of first century Jewish worldview and he keeps insisting, actually, God is interested in restoring and renewing this world. God made a world and God calls it good. And so the fundamental story that sort of unfolds is Jesus, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he speaks of it as sort of a real place, your father in heaven and those who are in heaven, and yet it's always heaven and earth becoming one. So as opposed to how do we get there, his interest is endlessly, how do we bring there here? Okay, did you hear that? So apparently Jesus' interest is how do we get here, or there, here, there being heaven. How do we get heaven here? Now, remember what Dr. Walter Martin said, that, you know, that with um, with the New Ager... It's all about heaven coming to earth and the, you know, the two being fused together, but it's sans or without uh, Jesus' second advent. Now, I want to read to you a section from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And after I read this, ask yourself this question. Who does Rob Bell sound more like? The New Agers that, uh, that, the, uh, that Walter Martin re- warned us about? Or does he sound more like Paul here? Let me, I'm gonna, if you have your Bible, flip on over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10, and then I'm going to fast forward to chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 13. Just wanna, I just you know, kind of want to point out a little bit of something along the way. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 8, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you, you Thessalonian uh, Christians, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul here in the intro to this letter to the Thessalonian churches um, makes it clear that um, we're waiting for Jesus to be revealed from heaven. And again, if you fast forward then to chapter 4, starting at verse 13, I read, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who are dead that you may not grieve as others uh, do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring, uh, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trump 
trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not, uh, so let us not sleep as others do. Let us Keep awake and be sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him." Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Okay? So here again, the Apostle Paul makes it clear how there gets here. There gets here when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And he specifically mentions the fact that those of us who are Christians will be saved from the wrath of God. So I just asked the question, as we're listening to Rob Bell, who does he sound more like? Does he sound more like the Apostle Paul here in Thessalonians? Now remember, the Apostle Paul learned his theology, learned his doctrine, learned his gospel directly from Jesus Christ. Or does Rob Bell sound more like the New Agers that Walter Martin was warning us about 30 years ago? That's that, just keep this question in your mind as we listen. Here we go. Which brings up a, now it's a much different sort of discussion. Let's stick on the there part for a minute. Okay. <laughs> so if heaven is something that happens at the end of time and it is some other dimension that touches us on earth as your, as your person who was dying described, yeah. intersects with us from yeah. time to time. Yeah. Where are the souls of the people I love who are passed away right now? The assumption is because physical bodies are buried that they are in some ways disembodied. So you have soul, you have essence. People have used all sorts of words for that. But they are nevertheless real, conscious, alive. Others say, no, everybody who's sort of gone is asleep. And at some moment in the future, there'll be this great sort of, hey, everybody, wake up putting the earth back together. There's endless sort of speculation about that. What do you say? I say there's endless speculation about that. (laughs) Okay, notice what he did there. Well, some people say this, some people say that. I mean, what if Peter had taken this approach when Jesus asked him, who do people say that I am? Remember, the disciples say, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say, uh, um, you know, one of the prophets come back. And so Jesus said, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter chimes in and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Imagine if he said, well, again, Jesus, some people say this and some people say that. That's what we just heard in an exchange here regarding you know, what, what happens to people at death. Rob Bell, some people say this, some people say that. But what do you say? Well, some people say this, some people say that. That was a complete evasion 
of the uh, of the question. And yet, there's clear passages of Scripture that make it that we could he could easily avail himself of right now, and he's not. Actually, actually, I think it's very important. It's very important when you're bumping up against to not turn your speculation into dogma. Okay, did you hear that? I think it's important that you don't turn your speculation into dogma. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, but here's the deal. Um, you're right, Rob. We're not supposed to put our speculations on par as dogma. But that doesn't mean that dogma doesn't exist or that dogma is synonymous with just people's ideas or speculations. Dogma exists where there is a clear teaching from God revealed in his word. And we're not to deviate from that because God said what he said and he meant what he said. So, yeah. And I think we've seen a lot of that, which is people going, okay, this person's there, this person's there, this is how this unfolds. And it's like we have no video evidence. So, so I think it's very important for people of faith to, yes, I believe in heaven. Yes, I believe it's real. Yes, I believe it is somehow intermingled with this reality and yet separate in some sense from this reality. And how exactly all of that works out, I, I don't know. But I know within each of us are very, very profound longings. And I think those are longings for something like C.S. Lewis. You don't rarely long for something that doesn't actually exist. And then beyond that, there's a point at which we are now firmly into mystery and speculation. And let's enjoy that sort of speculation, but when someone like drives their stake in and says, no, it's this, I go, ah, great, that's what you think. <laughs> what about what God has revealed? Is that just Paul's speculation or Jesus' speculation regarding these things? Um, let's get right to it, shall we? Um, oh, did we not do that earlier? <laughs> <laughs> what have you been doing? Um, you have been accused in a lot of the coverage of your book of being a universalist. And the universalist of theological terms means everybody gets to go to heaven. Um, everybody's allowed to go to heaven. Um, that means Buddhists, Hindus, you can reinterpret my definition of universalist when, you want it, when I'm done asking the question. Um, <laughs> Buddhists, Hindus, Jews, um, atheists, um, all get to go to heaven. Um, are you a universalist? No. Okay, now watch what he does. He's going to redefine the term. If by universalist we mean there's a giant cosmic arm that swoops everybody in at some point, whether you want to be there or not. And this is why. A couple of years ago I did a... Okay, what he's doing here is he's not dealing with her definition. He's redefined it. Well, if you mean by universalism... A universalist, a big arm swoops in and grabs everybody and brings them to heaven. Well, no, I'm not that. I'm not a universalist. He's redefining the term so that he can evade the, the label. Uh, a wedding. And the father of the bride made it really clear that he despised the groom in, in a number, in a multitude of ways. And so in the ceremony when he walked his daughter down, and it was that moment when the father of the bride hands the um, bride off to the groom, he said, she's yours now, <laughs> in front of everybody, which was total, like, awkward. Right. Um, you know, we all just kind of feel the love in, in the room. This Now, notice, he's going to his experiences. He's not going to um, the Bible. Father of the bride single-handedly 
cast the most oppressive dark cloud on the whole occasion because parties are terrible when there's somebody there who doesn't want to be there. So if by universalist we mean love doesn't win and God sort of co-ops the human heart and says, well, you're coming here and you're going to like it, um, that violates the laws of love. And love is about freedom. And where do you find these laws of love and all of this freedom? You haven't quoted a single passage of Scripture about that at all. That's just a philosophical concept. It's a philosophical construct. Hmm. It's about choice. It's about, do you want to be here? Because that's what would make it heaven if you're there and you don't want to be. Now, do I think all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds with all sorts of labels will be, yes, I think heaven's full of surprise. And I think all sorts of labels. That would include Buddhists, I'm telling you. When he's talking that way, all sorts of people with all sorts of labels... You know, labels like Muslims, labels like Buddhists, labels like Hindus, labels like followers of Jainism, Confucianism, animism. I think that's what he means there. Jesus brought this up again and again and again. He told all sorts of stories about how all the people who are supposed to be in might be out and the people who are out might be in. This was central to his teaching. Like, uh, 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 be careful. God's other name is surprise. That's not a text. That's not actually a verse. But. Yeah, uh-huh. I knew it. Right. I like it. <laughs> I'm glad you like it, but uh, notice that you just inserted something into the mouth of Jesus that he didn't say. What does that tell you? Right. Well, this belief of yours that we're all going to, or, you know. Yeah, this belief of yours. That was key. Lisa Miller gets it. And here's the thing. I, I, I watched this video a couple of times, and I'm telling you, based on her body language, the tone that she's using, she ain't buying it. And that was it. Based upon this belief of yours, Rob, yours. Good people. Well, fine. What's what gets you in? Here's what I begin. I begin with this. I begin with the reality of heaven and hell right now. Greed, injustice. Rape. So he's redefining the term. Uh, hell is a place on earth. Yeah. What was that song from the eighties? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Well, Rob Bell, it's, ooh, hell is a place on earth. Yeah, I think when people talk about war being hell or, or you know, or hell-like, you know, that they don't have any other referent than something that's, that's you know, that's worse than this than hell. Um, but notice how he's, at this point, he's just redefining the term. Well, I think that hell is now. Yeah, but that's not how Jesus was referring to it, and it's not how the apostles were referring to it, and it's not anything like what the church fathers I quoted were referring to. They talked about the everlasting fire, things like that. Yeah, they, they were talking about the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God and things of that nature. We, were, we just read the passages, but what is he doing? He's just redefining the term. Rape, abuse. We, we see hell on earth all around us, all the time. So I begin with these realities here and now. And we actually see lots of people choosing hell. We see oppression. We see tyranny. We see... You see, and when we redefine the term, well, look, at, look around you. We see a lot of people picking hell for themselves. 
he's avoiding answering any of these questions directly. Have you noticed that? And now we're just redefining the term and pouring our our own ideas, our own understanding, our own definition into the word hell in order to empty it of the biblical definition given to us by Jesus. The dictator is using their power to eliminate the opposition, like literally with bullets and guns and fire. So we see hells on earth right now. There are those that we sort of create our own, and then there are those we are the somebody else's that sort of spills over onto right. us. So is anyone like totally dissatisfied with what he's doing here? I mean, just redefine the term so you don't have to deal with the biblical concept. I'm an atheist, say, and I'm an atheist who gives to the poor and helps little old ladies across the street and spends all of my free time in charitable works. Am I well, going to heaven? The essence of grace is Jesus saying, left to your own, we are all in deep trouble. We've made a mess of this place. We're all sinners. No one has clean hands. So the essence of his gospel was, trust me, I'll take care of it. The essence of Jesus' gospel is, trust me, I'll I'll take care of it? Isn't the essence of the biblical gospel, trust Jesus, he took care of it by dying and rising again, by being crucified for our sins? Where is Christ's cross in all of this? Just trust me. Now, how exactly that works out? Because he's unbelievably exclusive. He says these things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says things like, if you've seen me, you've seen God. So he's very exclusive. He's also fantastically inclusive. Listen to what he does here. He says things like, you know, I have other sheep. He says, Yeah, just quote it out of context. The sheep he was talking about were the Gentiles. The Mormons used that passage to talk about how God had other believers in other continents on the South American and North American continents. Those were his other sheep. Oh, man, this is ridiculous. Seems like there'll be a renewal of all things. He says, I'll be lifted up and draw all people to myself. So he's like, uh, he's like inexclusive. That's a word that I just made up. <laughs> and so I think what happens is, especially for followers of Jesus, is there are sort of his exclusive claims that are often at the expense of the other things that he says, which are, be careful, because I'm doing something for everybody. And how exactly that... Where did Jesus say, be careful because I'm doing something for everybody? The verses that you quote out of context cannot, once you put them back into context, be used to support Jesus saying, saying that. You're, again, putting words into Jesus' mouth. Pans out. That's God's job. Right. So this sort of universalism that you're preaching that's exclusive and inclusive. <laughs> um, that I just denied. <laughs> yeah, that one. Okay. Um, <laughs> has offended some people who... Um, call themselves more orthodox than you. But I'll tell you something. That'd be a great name for a movement, by the way. More, more orthodox I'm than more you. I'm more orthodox than you. Yeah. yeah. And actually, my <laughs> mainline Protestant friends, and we can get into that in a minute, have a big conflict with the word orthodox and yeah. certain people claiming to be yeah, orthodox. Yeah, yeah, um, <clears throat> But there's, there is something in here that offends me, and it's not the, univer- the sort of universalist yeah. part. And it is what you just said, which is that Jesus is the mechanism yeah. through which we all will get there. Yeah, I understand. So I'm Jewish. Yeah. 
And my relatives, many of my relatives, died in Europe for mm -hmm. being Jewish. Mm -hmm. And they would be appalled to think that their salvation was dependent on Jewish, on Jesus, because they died for being Jewish. So are you yeah. sure that Jesus is the mechanism? Well, if I would say this. This would be a great place for him to mention the cross. He can fly right into Isaiah chapter 53, talking about the suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. By you know, All of that, he can just dive right into it. But here's the deal. We're talking about the mechanism of salvation here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the mechanism of our salvation Jesus bleeding and dying on a cross? This would be the great place to bring it up, and he could talk about Jesus being the Jewish Messiah. This would be the place to do it. This is the question. It's teed up. All you got to do is hit it out of the park here. Preach Christ and him crucified for our sins. Preach Jesus Christ, the prophesied Messiah. <clears throat> In uh, the Torah, when Moses strikes the rock and water flows from the rock, that is a beautiful story of people who are thirsty and we're told that through Moses, God provides them water. Then later, you know where I'm going with this. I do. Paul, Paul is like, oh yeah, that, that water was Christ. But he speaks of this Christ who is the word of God, who is the animating force of the universe. He, Whoa, what? Jesus is the animating force of the universe. There it is again. By the way, I you know I, I did uh, double check my sources. Uh, yeah, if you uh, read Velvet Elvis on page 192, endnote 143, here's what Rob Bell says. For a mind-blowing introduction to emergence theory and divine creativity, set aside three months and read Ken Wilber's book, A Brief History... Of everything. So now we've got Rob Bell saying, literally saying, that Jesus is the animating force in the universe. Does this sound anything like Jesus, the apostles, or the church fathers that I quoted, or does this sound more like the New Age Eastern stuff that Walter Martin warned us about 30 years ago? He broadens this way, way wide. And then he adds almost no commentary. Mm -hmm. He just says, God has been rescuing people, redeeming people for thousands of years. We see this throughout history. And then he sort of lets that just sit mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So that means that the Bible itself creates all sorts of space there. Now, of course, the Christian answer... What are you talking about the Bible creating all kinds of space there? It doesn't do anything of the sort. Nobody in Christianity has said anything as silly as this in its entire 2,000-year history. Your question with, yeah, well, then they're going to get there and they're going to find out that it was, you know, and like, oh... It, right, there's some magical little Jesus yeah. mechanism that happens that... Right, right, and you find that, and he's right. like, it was you all along, I didn't know... Yeah, really? I didn't... <laughs> Um, that is a great question. And I think it is most important for a Christian at this moment to be incredibly gracious and generous. And say, he comes and he says, I'm showing you what God's like. 
I came to, to make the Torah speak. I came to show you compassion. I came to show you generosity. I came to show you how to love your enemies. I came to show you how to make a better world. Does, does anybody have a problem with that? Uh, no, I'm about to. Great. Um, and he does say things like very divisive sort of, you're, but then he also says things like, if, oh, if you're not against me, then you're for me. He is a paradox. Mm -hmm. He is, within himself, bears tremendous tension. So apparently, <clears throat> G, uh, well, Rob Bell's been to the Build a God shop, and because he's been you know, influenced by emergence theory and his postmodern and all that kind of stuff, uh, the, isn't it odd that the God that he's discovered is, is none other than the, uh, the uh, postmodern paradox in human flesh? That's what he's found. And we've been trying to figure that out for thousands of years. Okay. How are we doing with that? That was okay. Was that okay? <laughs> I'll keep trying. Um, <laughs> do creeds matter in terms of getting to heaven? Do cre like if you say certain things? You say then, certain things. Like if you get like these 11 things in a row or if you get these yeah, nine things in a row? Yeah, if you make a certain kind of declaration once a week or every day. Or if you... I think creeds are very, very helpful for lots of people because they sort of take a confession of faith and they put it in a succinct form, and I think there is great life there. You know, it's funny. When you read Irenaeus uh, in his book that he wrote against, the, against heresies, against the Valentinian Gnostics, he uses the creed as the outline against the heresy. They're not just nice little succinct little summaries of what somebody confesses. They were, in fact, if you understand the Nicene Creed at all, it was written specifically so that the Arians couldn't confess it and, be, and continue in the church because it put down their false teaching. Yeah, in the, in the past, the creeds have been used as a means of teaching the faith and correcting false doctrine and putting heretics out of the church. But then you have other stories like... In the Gospels, it's all over the map. These guys lower their friend down through a hole in the roof, and Jesus says, well, because of their faith to the man, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, let me read that story. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. I want to point something out here. He, this is a point that he brings up in his book, too. Basically, this is in the deconstructing opening uh, shots in his book where he's trying to deconstruct what it, how people are saved. And so he's trying to argue that from this passage from Mark chapter 2, that the reason why the paralytic was healed was only because of the faith of the people who lowered him. But let me point something out to you in the text. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. This is Jesus. He's at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, Jesus, was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Sons, your Son, your sins are forgiven. Now I want to point something out here. Does the text say, and when, they saw, and when Jesus saw their faith, only referring to the people lowering him? No. In fact, I think a better way to understand this text is that when Jesus saw all of their faith, including the paralytic, 
including the faith of the paralytic, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, he's taking liberties with the text that uh, that are just indefensible. And here's the other part. We are always to interpret the unclear passages from the clear. And it's clear from the clear passages that salvation is by grace through faith. It is not our works. It is the gift of God so that no one might boast. So I just want to point that out. You know, Rob Bell takes extreme liberties with the text in this lecture as well as in his book. Well, what's that? Well, a man named Zacchaeus says, if I've taken anything from anybody, I'll, I'll give it back. And Jesus says, today salvation has come. And you can't say that salvation came to Zacchaeus because he did the right thing, because salvation is a gift. What you can say is the fact that Zacchaeus, that the first, basically the first good work of Zacchaeus's faith was that he made right the things that he was doing wrong. That was the first good work wrought by his faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Rob Bell, by reading this passage the way he's reading it, is ignoring the clear passages that make it clear. The one thing we cannot say about Zacchaeus is that he was saved by his works. What we can say with certainty, because of the clear passages, is that Zacchaeus's good works were springing from his faith in Christ. Which is a play on words, that's his name. But if you actually read the Gospels, people receive this grace, they affirm this, they experience this in as many ways almost as there are people. So yes, creeds are terribly powerful. Do I think that if you say certain things every Sunday, that somehow magically does something? No. I'm um, getting to this question that through history has been called the faith versus works or the grace versus works question, right? Do you get to heaven because God, we can even leave aside Jesus, because God is mysterious and great and supernatural and can do God as God? Or do you get to heaven because you've helped the old lady across the street and because you've given to charity and because you've taken care of the poor and because you care about the sick? I think that at the core of faith is trust. Trust in whom for what? That's the question. And... You're not going to hear trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins won by his shed blood on the cross and his resurrection from the dead on the third day after he was crucified. Because the, the resurrection is going to come up in this discussion, and what Rob Bell does with it is unbelievable. But let's continue. And I would use childlike very intentionally. Childlike trust that God is good. And so faith is just childlike trust that God is good. No repentance, no forgiveness of sins, no shed blood on the cross. Just childlike trust. God is good. God is love. That's what, that's what faith is. It's just trust. Ultimately, we're okay. And I think that is a simple, beautiful, pure thing that can be complicated ferociously by all sorts of intellectual categories of 
assent and affirmation. And I think out of that experience, out of that awareness that life is a gift, that this next breath is a gift. So it's just awareness that life is a gift. Okay. That we are the recipients of this absolutely unbelievably pure thing called life. Like Heschel said, to, to remember. Like that's what we do. And out of that, out of that gratitude and out of that love, you naturally want to share this with the world. So you actually do help the lady off the street. Not because you... Just because you have gratitude because you have air to breathe. Okay, yeah. I think this gets you something, but because you are aware that you already have something that's worth the universe. And out of that, who doesn't respond with, yes, I will help that lady across the street. How's that? That was good. What are you thinking? You like that one? Yeah. <laughs> um, your book has been, even before anybody read it, your book was criticized as being heretical. Um, it seemed to me that a lot of the stuff that you write in your book is stuff that other people have written before. <laughs> I, mean, I mean that in the nicest way. <laughs> It sounded like he, she was accusing him of plagiarism. <laughs> yeah, actually, in the preface, I say this isn't, there's nothing new here. Um, so tell me what's so controversial about it. Um, I guess other people could answer that better. Um, I'll take a crack at it. Um, the reason why it's controversial, because he ain't teaching what Jesus taught. He ain't teaching what the apostles taught. He ain't teaching what the early churches taught and what the churches taught from the beginning. That's why it's so controversial. This is Rob Bell's theology. This is not the theology of the Christian church from the beginning. This is not the theology or doctrine that Jesus taught regarding the afterlife. That's why it's so controversial, because people who actually know how to read their Bibles can read this and go, yeah, what, what he's saying ain't jiving with what this text says. I think that grace and love always rattle people. As soon as you say that perhaps this particular little club of people who have decided they're the orthodox ones, as soon as you say, I think it might be a little wider than that, you're threatening whole systems. You're threatening whole ways of thinking. And that's, that's threatening. I guess what I'm asking is, aren't you just a mainline Protestant posing as an evangelical? Like, aren't you just... <laughs> yes, he is. I mean, now that we're talking about labels, aren't you just no, saying... To, to be totally and it's a little bit more than that, too, because he's a, he's a mainline liberal who's been influenced by Buddhist thought via A Brief History of Everything by Ken Wilber. And, uh, he, and he's a mystic on top of it. So, yeah, he, he's a mainline liberal, but he's the new brand of mainline liberal... And he, uh, he, he dressed up as an evangelical with a seeker-driven megachurch. That the Episcopalians have been saying for 50 or 60 years? Great. Do I make some claims to originality? No. Do, do I think that I am evangelical and orthodox to the bone? Yes. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that orthodoxy is a terribly wide, diverse stream. Right. So he's orthodox because he's redefined orthodoxy to mean a terribly wide, diverse stream. Probably so wide that it includes Arius, Marcion, um, <laughs> Pelagius, uh, the Docetistic heresy, even the early Gnostics. Yeah, I mean, because orthodoxy 
See, you just redefine it. Orthodoxy now means a terribly wide and diverse stream. Well, of course I'm orthodox. And I think that's the real question here. Okay. Is the endless religious sort of compulsion to say, you're in, we're in, you're out, you're in, to, to constantly sort of narrow it and all of that. And I think... You know what's so funny is, is that talking about you're in and you're out... Um, Jesus was really he he had a bad habit um of the you're in you're out kind of stuff and uh <clears throat> let's for instance Jesus in Matthew 7 uh 15 says beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves apparently Jesus didn't think everybody was a true prophet and as a as a result of that um you know, he warned people about them. And because, you know, Jesus was a you're in, you're out kind of religious dude. Um, and let's see here. Um, Jesus in Matthew 16 says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So, see, he warned people about them basically acting like they're out and and they weren't in, you know, and things like that. And then, you know, of course, you know, Jesus and, you know, Matthew 7, we'll get to it. I mean, he didn't sound like everybody was in there. So Jesus, and and then Jesus, he turns around and he calls down woes. I mean, I mean, talk. I mean, oh, listen to. Well, I mean, since okay, listen to the animating force incarnate. <laughs> yeah, you think I'm joking? Uh, but that's what I mean. Isn't that what Rob Bell said? Jesus was. Jesus is the animating force of the universe, and the animating force of the universe, well, is love. So, um. So listen to the animating force known as love incarnate in what he said in Matthew chapter 23. <clears throat> I quote, and see if Jesus was, you know, one of these religious guys that, that Rob Bell is speaking against who's talking about who's in and who's out. Here is love incarnate, the animating force of the universe speaking. <clears throat> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he come, becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe, you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that was that made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean 
clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside also might be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all kinds of uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that you may, so that may come on you all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." That, by the way, was love incarnate speaking. That was Jesus, the animating force of the universe, speaking. Sounds to me like he was kind of talking like the um, scribes and Pharisees were out. What do you think? We continue. That vibrant, real, historic Christian faith is wide and leaves lots and lots of room for lots of varying perspectives. And when people say, how can you say that? Well, lots of people have said that. And they're firmly within the sort of Jesus tribe. It's very diverse and wide. And that's okay. That's actually part of its strength. It's actually part of its life and vibrancy. That's why it's so beautiful to me. And evangelical means, uh, like, good news. It's an announcement of good news. It should be a buoyant, joyous hopeful thing. People who want nothing to do with Christians could say, the things you're talking about and the way that you're living and moving in the world, that is, that's good news. And I think we need to reclaim that. Is anybody with me now? Come on. <laughs> I, I'll get an amen out of you. Yeah, at some point. So I just asked the question, who does he sound more like? Jesus, the apostles, and the early church fathers that I've quoted, or more like the um, New Age Eastern guys that Walter Martin was warning us against? Who do you think? Uh, <laughs> um, Augustine, St. Augustine, in The City of God, wrote this wonderful description near the end of The City of God about what happens to our body, what our bodies are like in heaven. And he was very um, tormented by this question mm -hmm. because resurrection was so problematic for the early yeah. Christians because um, so few people believed it. And so he went into this whole thing about, you know, we're going to be 30, we'll, have, we'll be more beautiful than we were in life, but we won't elicit any lust, but... You know, if we have scars, the scars will have gone away, and if we're fat, we'll become thin, and if we're too thin, we'll become fatter. And like, he's just extremely great and detailed. And I guess I'm wondering, what do you think our bodies look like in heaven? Well, see, I, I am so deeply shaped with heaven on earth. Uh huh. I, I am so deeply shaped by Jesus, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So. By the way, that's quoting uh, Jesus from the uh, Lord's Prayer: uh, "Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." And he's twisted that along with other emergent liberals. They've twisted this to somehow mean that that means heaven is here on earth. 
Again, this is heaven coming to earth without Jesus coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. Who does this sound more like? Jesus, his apostles, and the early church? Or does it sound more like the Eastern mystics and New Agers that uh, Walter Martin was warning us about? So, so my sort of consciousness around heaven is so shaped by the idea of a restored, renewed uh, earth slash heaven. And I love the fact that in the resurrection accounts, Jesus' friend Mary sees him and thinks he's the gardener. Which I think is a very Jewish sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, garden, Genesis, you know. Yeah, watch what he's doing with the resurrection here. I'm going to go into the uh, the resurrection accounts here to kind of clean this up because you need to hear what he says before I clean it up. If you have your Bibles, flip on over to, um, well, I'll, I'll, get, I'll give you the passages in a second. I think it's Matthew and, uh, and Luke, but I'll, I'll give you more details in here in a second. Yeah, you know what I mean? I think there's like a like, sort of bob and weave in that. So how old people are, and also so interesting in the resurrection accounts, which have all of these sort of awkward differences in them. One of the things that comes through is people who apparently spent years with Jesus don't recognize him. Mary thinks he's a gardener, and there's this Road to Emmaus story where he sort of does this like, hey, by the way, was that guy? You know, and they find out you know, their heart hearts burned within us. So, so the people who are closest to him don't recognize him until he speaks or he breaks this bread. So there's some sort of essence that sort of transcends your physicality. There's some sort of essence to each of us. And then how that manifests... Okay, now stop. I got... I, I, oh, man, this is going to take some time. It, both passages, by the way, that we're looking for are in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bible, flip on over to John chapter 20. And I want to point this out. This is, this is a classic thing that I've seen cultists do. The uh, Jehovah's Witnesses do this to try to prove that Jesus didn't re- raise from the dead bodily. And for whatever reason, now liberal, emergent mystics like uh, Rob Bell are doing the same thing. It, it, he, notice, the way he's talking about resurrection, he's, he's, he, uh, he's, notice he's avoiding the talk of physical body being raised from the dead and redefining it as, well, resurrection is some kind of an essence kind of thing. And the way I know that is because Mary didn't recognize him because she thought he was the gardener and, and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> Let me, if you have your Bible, John chapter 20, starting at verse 11. This is so simple that like anybody with even just basic observation skills can pick this up. Here's what it says, verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now watch what happens here, because this is really important. She's weeping. Have you all ever wept before? I don't know about you, but I've I've wept a few times in my life. It it happens. I know I'm a guy and not supposed to cry, but oh well, I've done it. Okay, I have a hard time seeing when I'm weeping. Very difficult time seeing. And here it's telling the story in such a way. I mean, in such a way that she's kind of looked over and she sees him there. She thinks it's the gardener, right? Okay, 
The text will explain to you why she doesn't recognize him. Is it because Jesus is just some kind of an essence that when he was resurrected, there's something that's changed about him and it's not quite the same and it's hard to recognize who he is? I continue. Verse 15, supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, watch this, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Two very important words there. She turned. Two reasons why she didn't recognize Jesus. Two. Two. Are you ready? Reason numero uno, the reason why they didn't, she didn't recognize Jesus is because she was weeping. Okay. Second, the reason why she didn't recognize Jesus is she wasn't turned totally facing him. As a result of it, she didn't recognize him. So it says in the text that she turned. And when she turned, she recognized him. She recognized him by his voice, and then she turned and recognized him. But it says in the text, she turned. She turned. Doesn't say anything about Jesus' essence being different in the resurrection. Doesn't say anything of the sort. Now, the second one, it's in Luke chapter 24. Not John, but it's in Luke Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13, we read, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. In the Greek, it says their eyes were held. It doesn't say that Jesus was different. It said the reason they didn't under they didn't recognize him is because somehow miraculously their eyes were held so they couldn't recognize Jesus. Yet Rob Bell here is seen arguing that somehow Jesus' essence is changed in the resurrection, but the texts don't say that. This is a problem. Itself in terms of physicality, who knows how old you get to pick? You got like okay, welcome to heaven, pick and you have to like pick 17. No, no, wait. <laughs> no, 18. 52. Well, it seems to me that resurrection is really central to this whole thing because there are those who would say that if you don't believe in resurrection, and by resurrection they mean not some permanent essence existing in eternity, but you, your physical body. Yeah. That's what happens at the end of the world. Your physical yeah. body joins your soul yeah. in the renewed heaven and earth. That's, that's the way yeah. it's yeah. taught. Yeah. So it seems to me, it, it is for me, resurrection is the hardest part of the whole thing. Because yeah. Yeah. I don't really get how that works, and it sounds to me like you don't really get how it works either. I think, Chris, <laughs> <laughs> this, this, is, this is why the discussion is so sort of great, yeah. great and interesting and compelling. What I do think is really important about resurrection. Is resurrection says that this world matters. And I think that what's so unbelievably crucial about resurrection is this. So how does it prove that, that this world matters if Jesus isn't, I mean, based on his theology, I don't even know if he believes Jesus actually bodily rose from the dead, except for maybe his essence somehow was different or whatever. 
I mean, here we're taking resurrection now, and we're talking about resurrection in the abstract. Resurrection proves that this world matters. Well, that's great. Um, if, can you t- did Jesus actually bodily rise from the dead? Yes or no? It says that this world matters and that God has great value on this world and has great desire to alleviate the suffering in this world. And so the sort of resurrection as a floaty sort of, this is how we evacuate and go somewhere else. To me, resurrection is affirmation of the goodness of this world. It's about dirt and sweat and sex and vineyards. And it's, it is an earthy... Aff- resurrection is about a dead body being brought back to life again. Affirmation of this world is good. It was created for you to enjoy it. And an effort and a rescue thing is going on through Jesus to reclaim all of this. And, and this has everything to do with how we actually live and move in the world. It is not about evacuation. It's about one in six people in the world don't have access to clean drinking water. It's like almost a billion people. And I think resurrection... And what does... <laughs> The resurrection have to do with clean drinking water. We've now abstracted resurrection into the social gospel. Resurrection is talking about a dead body rising again. Resurrection <sighs> is a belief and a hope and should be this beautiful sort of, let's get them drinking water. That's part of the goodness of this creation is it serving what we need to survive within it. And that's where I think it is unbelievably important. Now, exactly how tall, short, wide, thin, who's, you know what I mean, do you mow lawns or do they naturally trim themselves? Fascinating, but maybe not the center of the discussion. Okay, maybe not, but, but I'm harping on it because it is so central to yeah. faith. And, and the theologian N.T. Wright said to me, you know, in the Bible, they talk about resurrection, and if they meant some wifty going of soul somewhere else, they would have said wifty going of soul somewhere else. Yes, but wifty being said, a very technical <laughs> word. <laughs> well, what they said was yeah. resurrection, <clears throat> body, you know, coming back to life from the dead. That's yes. the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Is, do you think there's a reason why Lisa Miller is circling back and trying to pin him down? Resurrection is a body coming back to life, right? And there was this whole group of people who were like, it's almost like the gospel of Ricky Bobby, that. <sighs> you know, you, you all remember the Saturday Night Live sketch uh, with uh, Pat? Uh, you can never tell if Pat was a guy or a girl, and they were trying to figure out if Pat was a guy or a girl. I feel like that's what Lisa Miller here is doing with Rob Bell. Do you believe resurrection is a dead body coming back to life or not? And now he's just said, well, it's like the Ricky Bobby gospel. What? This is like, Pat, are you a guy or a girl? Which is it? Just happened. You know what I mean? Like there was this dramatic sort of, and if you, I mean, so look at sociologically, large groups of people don't generally have massive changes in belief like that. That just doesn't. So something did happen. Something happened. Was the something Jesus bodily rising from the dead or not? This is not a hard thing to answer because the biblical text says that Jesus appeared to them and they thought it was a ghost. Let me see if I can find this real quick here. Um, is oh man, this is driving me. I think it's back in that John text that we were in John chapter twenty. 
Hang on a second here. I'm flipping over there in my computerized Bible, so I'm not really flipping. Uh, uh, okay, so um, let's see here. Nope, I was wrong. It's Luke. It's Luke twenty-four. Luke twenty-four. Okay, so here we go. Luke twenty-four, starting at verse thirty-six. I read. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they had seen a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when they he had sh- and when he had said this, they sh- he showed them his hands and feet. And while they dis- uh, and while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. He said to them, "Have you anything here to eat?" Yeah, spirits don't come and ask for uh, something to eat. Essences don't crawl into the room and ask for something to eat. This, I mean, why is he not answering this question? Could it possibly be that he doesn't really believe Jesus rose from the dead bodily and why he keeps talking about Jesus' appearances as an essence that people didn't recognize? And when pushed regarding the corporal bodily resurrection of Jesus, his best answer is something happened. I don't know what, but it was something. And it was something important, but it, wow, that just happened, the Ricky Bobby gospel. But he's not answering the question, and she was trying to pin him down on the physical thing. I also think in our modern scientific sort of, in some ways, closed world, like the things that happen have to be able to be measured with the five senses we have access to, or they didn't really happen. I, what the resurrection does is confront this with wonder and mystery and miracle. It, it confronts us with, maybe the universe is way stranger and weirder than we thought. And I like that. I like that. I like leaving all of the space to say absolutely over-the-top, unbelievably hard-to-explain, mysterious, miraculous things happen. Deal with it. Wow. Mysterious, miraculous things happened. Couldn't tell you if it was Jesus actually bodily rising from the dead. You know, that's what, you know, dead... That's what resurrection means. But it was truly amazing and mysterious. And yeah, folks, there's a problem here with his uh, with his beliefs regarding Jesus's resurrection. I don't think Rick, I don't, not Rick Warren. I don't think Rob Bell thinks that Jesus actually rose bodily from the dead. Otherwise, he'd be saying that and he wouldn't be evading these questions. And I, and I, I the resurrection forces you to do that. And I like that. Um, Is anybody else? Oh, good. Um, I think I'm going to start taking questions from you all. Um, so I think there are people with mics. Is that right? Or um, So why don't we start, and then I can ask more questions, and then you guys can ask questions, and we're also going to have some questions being fed to us from the Internet. Hi. Let's say, hypothetically, I'm an atheist, and I don't want anything to do with God. Um, Would it be loving for God to put me in heaven if I didn't want to be with him? If you were an atheist, would it be loving for God? Well, I begin with God is love, and love demands freedom, and God gives us what we want. And for somebody who's like, I want nothing to do with peace, 
joy, reconciliation, forgiveness, generosity, really, really good food and wine. <laughs> I, I sort of just begin at a very sort of simple level. I, I believe God gives us what we want. And if someone's like, no way, I don't want that, then God's like, okay, okay. But isn't and, and that, sorry, can I? Uh, before Lisa Miller chimes in, she's going to nail him to the wall on this. So basically, uh, if you don't want to go to heaven, that's fine. God won't make you go to heaven. So you go to hell, and, and if you don't like that, then God will take you to heaven. Sounds like manipulation and coercion to me. Just interrupt for a second. Isn't that completely self-interested? Isn't that like, you know, I want wine, you want beer, I want Chinese food, you want Indian food. Like, what does that have to do with God? Why does God care about Indian food or Chinese food or wine or beer? I mean, isn't heaven about being with God? Right. Yes. But I, once again, I would bring it back to everyday sort of things. As a pastor, I see people make unbelievably destructive choices. And when sort of it is laid out, you realize that you're miserable. You, you realize that this choice is, you yourself have said, I'm in agony. The people around you are like dying watching you do this. And the person says, yep, and I'm going to keep doing it. They're, they're, you know what I mean? And, and, and we've, I mean, I'm sure many of us have been part of, you know, get the whole intervention thing, whether it's drugs or something. You know what? We all love you so much. We're begging you to consider a different... Nah. I've seen that over... I think we all have where you see the hardness of the human heart. And it makes no sense. People cling to a path that is destructive. They're hell-bent, sometimes we say. And it is a fundamental mystery of the human heart why we would see... And you can even say, you know that you choose this way. It will be joyful and it will be satisfied and it will be... Yeah, I know, but I'm going to do this. Um, And so we see that around us all the time. So I just begin with, I see this around us all the time, and I assume that sort of choice, ability, option continues on into the future. Now, your whole question about Chinese food in heaven, I'll have to think about. Okay. This is from... um... Notice, he said, I just assume that that choice that begins now just continues on into the future without a single passage of Scripture that even says anything remotely like it. I just assume that that choice continues on into the future. Wow. The University of Pennsylvania, who are joining us um, online, Chaplain Charles Howard asks, this is an important conversation for Christians to have, but in an interfaith environment like a university, how can you envision this conversation being introduced? God's love, eternity, heaven, hell are challenging enough topics to broach internally with Christians. What about all the others? Well, there is a common good that we all long for, so that discussion continues to go on, where we all agree, like with peacemaking. A friend of mine keeps saying, how come universities don't have a peacemaking major? Like, how do you make peace? How do you make peace among different ethnicities? How do you make peace across sort of geopolitical bounds? That is a project we could all work on together. Um, Ultimately, at the heart of the Christian faith, is this Jesus who keeps talking about being a servant. So 
the ultimate impulse that Jesus keeps bringing up is not, okay, here's how you get everybody to think like you, do what you want them to do. It's how do you serve others? So what does the world need? And what do people of other religions need? How can you serve them? How can you bless them? So his call was endlessly, he even like washes his disciples' feet. Funny, when you read the book of Acts, the thing that the people in other religions need is repentance of their false religion and the forgiveness of their sins. The passage I read from Thessalonians noted how the Thessalonians were idolaters who repented and were forgiven by Christ. That seems to be missing here, don't you think? It's just very sort of humbling. Your task in the world is to serve. And and that brings about a very, very different discussion. Because we've seen lots of Christians who are like, we're right, and our job is to show you how we're right so you can be right with us. I think Jesus was far more interested, no, you humble yourself and you serve. And that opens up all sorts of interesting discussion. That's a really good question. Yeah. I have a question uh, specifically about Matthew 7, and what would you do with the passage that talks about specifically why does the road that leads to destruction and narrows the path that leads to life? What would you do with that passage? Okay. (laughs) Before we get the answer to this question, because this is the moment in (laughs) this question and answer period, let me read to you the relevant passage. Matthew chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, flip on over to there. I think we're going to start at like verse 13. Here we go. Jesus speaking from the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay. That's the full thought there from the Sermon on the Mount. So the question is, you know, what are you going to do with Matthew 7 that says, narrow is the way that leads to life, but wide is the road to re- that leads to destruction. Get ready. Put your helmets on. You'll need knee pads, a helmet, maybe a little bit of duct tape, um, and, some, and an ice pack for your head afterwards. Here we go. You ready? What is he going to do with this text? Watch what he does. I think it's a great uh, passage because the things in life that matter take incredible intention. And I think it's a passage ultimately about intention and about the power of devoting yourself to something and to somebody. So let's take marriage. 
what? This is clearly a passage about the judgment day. This is about salvation. And no, 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 no. According to him, no, this is a passage about intention. Let's take marriage for an example. Please do tell. Marriage doesn't take much work at all. It's just like you get along with this person fantastically year after year. No, I mean, let's be honest. There's like a thousand ways. Sometimes it feels like a thousand ways every day for marriage to broad as the path. You know what I mean? All of the different ways that... Yeah, so broad is the path that leads to, uh, you know, uh, an unhappy marriage. It can really unravel to where somebody's on the couch. And, And so for it... To work takes extraordinary intention. It, it is. You see, this is really easy. The way you get rid of hell is any verse that that contradicts your theories and your your own theology. You allegorize it and make it about something else, so that it's not about the topic that you, that it's really about, so that it can't contradict what you're teaching. So, when Jesus says. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to life. No, he's not talking about salvation there. He's talking about intentionality, you know, so that, because, you know, unless you add some intentionality to things, you know, your marriage could get really difficult. And, that, and so w- narrow is the road that leads to a happy marriage. It's a narrow way. It is saying we are going to devote ourselves to this, and we are going to not give up. And we are going to work at this over, and we are going to persevere. So, it, first off, as, at a basic level, athletes who train, there's lots and lots of distractions. Um, Kierkegaard said that a saint is the person who wills the one thing. So, so, narrow is the way. Jesus, I think, is speaking of all of the different ways we lose the plot on what it means to be human. So, there was a very real political climate that he lived in, and a number of people said the, re- the thing we are to do is... Fa- you know, I'm, I'm thinking that Rob Bell must have been just a sheer delight to have in small group Bible study when he was a teenager. So, Rob, what does this verse mean to you? And he would reach into his vivid imagination and start just pulling out anything. So here we got Jesus saying, wide is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the path that leads to life. And then that whole section ends off on the judgment day. We're, and, and no, no, that's not about Judgment Day. No, 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 that's not what that's about. It's about marriage. It's about training hard as an athlete. It's about living your life with intentionality so that you don't lose, so that you don't lose focus on, the, on, the, on what the plot is to be a human. And you just bang your head against your desk and go, you've got to be kidding me. But you got to give them props for creativity here. I mean, on the creativity scale, that's like off the chart. As far as fidelity scale, uh, the fidelity scale and actual being able to properly handle the text and exegete it correctly, yeah, he gets an absolute zero, probably negative points. And you would be hard-pressed to find a single uh, church father who came up with anything remotely looking like that interpretation. Because what Jesus said didn't need interpreting. It was pretty clear. Faithful people of God is we are to pick up swords, and we are to fight the Romans. And he's like, okay, the sword thing? We've tried that. Let's reclaim what it means to be a light to the world. He takes them all the way back into their history, which was a narrow way. So I think it works. And the beautiful thing to me of Jesus teachings as they work at all of these different levels. 
their fundamental truths about how the world works. They were very clear warnings and teachings and guidance for people he was interacting with, very real people in a real place who had real struggles. Um, and actually, when I recently preached that at our church, and I told the story, there's this freeway at our church, near, near where our church is, and when you get on the freeway, um, the f- traffic is like flying, and you have this really narrow way to uh, merge, and if you don't merge and get over to the left really quickly, and you take your life in your hands every time, or you end up going to Muskegon, and you don't want to go to Muskegon. So I did this whole thing on broad is, broad is the way to Muskegon, um, and so I tried to recreate which I'm realizing now is an inside joke, and, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, here's a question from Ben from Ohio. Hi, Ben from Ohio. Is there a hell, and if not, does that take anything away from the cross? I actually, I actually think there is hell, because we see hell every day. I don't think that's what he was referring to, do you? Oh yeah, I, I believe in hell on earth. That's what he. That, that's what the guy from Ohio wanted to know about. Yeah, we we can resist and we can re- reject what it means to be fully human and good and decent and compassionate. But yes, I think there is, and we have that choice now, and I assume we have that choice on into the future. Yeah, there we go again. Uh, we have that choice now, and I assume. You know what they say about assuming, right? You know, it it makes it well. You know what the how the saying goes. Yeah, he just assumes that we have the choice now and that we and he assumes that we have it on into the future. No clear word of God on that, just Rob Bell, just assuming that's the case and yeah, are you willing to uh, bet your eternity on his assumptions? I hope not. Yes. Thank you, Ben. Right there. Did you notice how he completely dodged the cross portion of the question? Oh, hi. I, I'm really, uh, you know, touched by kind of the understanding that God is love, and I think I can really kind of understand and grasp God. I feel like I can reach out to Him and interact with Him in that way. Um, one of the things that uh, a question for me uh, to that kind of uh, is hard to get over is that this God is love, kind of like the interaction of acting out and doing these love acts and finding God in that way. Like, does God become the act of love, just an action, or is God an actual being? Um, Does the understanding of God as love kind of take, kind of remove him from being a a real being? Okay, can't wait to hear it. So is God actually a person or not there, Rob? Uh, Can you think you can answer that one directly? That uh, is a great question. Now, at the heart of the the Jewish understanding of the world, which out of which the Christian understanding emerged, is that God is both a divine being, sort of separate from creation, but also moving and present within history. So like the Exodus, King David... Um, the scriptures endlessly speak of actual history, real people in real places and real times encountering the divine. Yeah, the question is, God a personal being or not? That's really the essence of this question, Rob. So sometimes what happens with God is, is God becomes a sort of esoteric um, 
man, for some reason, with a, a long beard and a white robe and a cane, sort of God becomes an esoteric man? Hatched from human history, and then to talk about divine things is basically sort of to leave everyday world, you know what I mean? And, and think about some realm. But, but the scriptural consciousness is God at work in history. And, and actually, the, 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 you're not answering. Is God a personal being or not? Christian story is God at work and history and coming among us. There's a great um, book by Abraham. Is God a personal being or not, Rob? Joshua Heschel, uh, one of the great theologians, God in search of man. And, and I would add, and woman. Um, but this beautiful idea of the God who pursues people in history. Um, and so that speaks to each of our, the experiences you've had when you had the sense that you weren't alone. The, the experiences you've had, the moments when you had a total coincidence, but later you were like, I don't know, that felt like more than a coincidence. That you heard a, you heard a song, and the song struck a chord within you like the, the world's okay. Or somebody said something to you, and it was just an offhanded comment, and it was a kind, nice comment, but later you realized that that one little word, like, it lifted you up and it carried you for a day. How many of you know what I'm talking about? There's this, 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 sense, this sense you have, almost like this radar that keeps pinging. Um, and I think that's God in, God in search of people. And it is an experience that people have witnessed to for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Hmm, it doesn't even remotely sound like the personal God of the Jews at all. Hmm, the God whom we can experience in history, and sometimes he manifests himself as a white, as a, ma- a man with a beard and a cane. Let me play again Walter Martin's uh, five things that, uh, that characterize New Age thought and thinking. Here's Walter Martin again. So the New Age movement is characterized by the following things. Universal salvation for everybody. Secondly, an impersonal concept of God. Thirdly, a Christ consciousness, which is the divinity of all of us. Fourthly, sin dealt with by reincarnation, but you don't call it sin. And the kingdom of heaven comes to earth, but it comes through the Lord Maitreya. It comes through the philosophy of Hinduism. It does not come through the second advent of Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm just asking the question again. Who does Rob Bell sound more like? What uh, Walter Martin warned us about 30 years regarding Eastern um, uh, concepts in the New Age? Or does he sound exactly like Jesus, the apostles, and the early church fathers that I quoted earlier in the program? I mean, he wouldn't even answer the question straight up as to whether or not God was a personal being. When he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is an essence that people can't recognize. Something happened, but we don't know what. It's mysterious. There's a, a question. There's a question from the audience. Dr. Ron Walborn, Dean of the Alliance Theological Seminary at NIAC, is here. Awesome. Ron is here and brought friends. Oh, hi. Okay. Hi, Ron. Um, my seminary and my stream that I come from is very focused on the Great Commission. Yes. And, uh, and hopefully with the great commandment spirit yes. as we go. Um, but if we lose the concept of hell, and I'm not sure I 
understood. Do you believe that hell, first of all, is a real place, or is it just hell on earth? Direct question. I wonder if he'll get a direct answer. Based upon the answers we've been hearing from Rob Bell all evening, I wouldn't bet money that he's going to give a direct answer to such a direct question. How about you? And if we do de-emphasize the doctrine of hell, what does that do to the motivation for Christian mission? That's a great question. First off, I think it's very important to talk about hell because I think it's absolutely crucial that we come face-to-face with the power of our choices. Like we, we, we can choose the way of compassion, the way of forgiveness, the way of generosity, or we can choose other paths, and those have very real consequences in the world. So I always begin with, this is absolutely crucial. And then, in terms of Great Commission, central, um, I love the Jesus saying, go and make disciples, um, baptizing or immersing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Did you hear what he said? He said baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a complete twisting, and it's, and it's subtle, and you'd miss it if you didn't know what you were looking for. But again, I've watched this a few times. Matthew 28, if you have your Bible, flip on over there. I want to point this out, because the way he tells this ain't what Jesus said. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of, yeah, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Watch what he does here, because he he's monking around with this. Hey, let me back this up. Maybe a smidge. I hope I, there. Listen again. Absolutely crucial. And then, in terms of Great Commission, central, um, I love the Jesus saying, go and make disciples, um, baptizing or immersing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's one way of seeing that as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is um, immersing them in a Trinitarian community. So go What? out and announce this good news to people. Uh, proclaim God's love. Proclaim God's rescue effort in the midst of creation, the God who's pursuing people. And then invite them into your community where they can experience the love of God as it is shared and passed around and extended to each other. Yeah, so, so at, uh, like at our church, we often talk about the good news is better than that. What, whatever you have, there's actually a chapter in the book on that little book thing right there. Um, that, that there is a story, it is being told in human history, and Jesus invites us into the story and then to share the story with others. Um, and I think that's absolutely, that's at the center of it. And, and actually, I think... The real challenge for Christians when it comes to witnessing evangelism is, do you actually think this is a great story? And so uh, we actually, at our church, have classes where people just sit around and talk about their story. Like, let's talk about what you've been through. Let's talk about the hell you've been through and what happened when you encountered grace. Um, like, there's a couple in our church who, I think they had four or five miscarriages. Like, like 24, 25, 27. 20. And it was absolutely excruciating um, to watch them go through. This wasn't the plan. And so they started a group for couples who are trying to get pregnant and can't. And had no sort of curriculum, had no sort of thing. Just, let's get in a living room and let's tell our stories and... The stories that have come out of just that group of God's grace meeting people in extraordinary 
sort of despair and suffering. And we say that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Let's tell that Jesus story over and over again. It's beautiful. Yeah, excellent question. That wasn't a Jesus story. That's a story about them. Um, I actually have a question that I'm just thinking about right now from your answer to this question, so bear with me as I try to frame it. And it goes like this. You say hell is based on bad choices, based on choices. We choose not to help the poor. We choose not to help the sick. We choose to lie. We choose to oppress other people. We choose to gossip. But it seems to me that there's another hell, too, which is the hell not of your own making. Right, right, right. Someone else's choices. Or bad stuff that happens. Yeah, yeah. The book of Job. I mean, he was trying to be a faithful person. Yeah. And bad stuff kept happening to him over and over and over again. And it seems to me that historically, at least, heaven has been a way out for people who are in a hell of their, not of their own making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a radical reversal of justice. I am in this terrible situation now, but in the next world, I will not have cancer. I will not be poor. I will not be a slave. I will not be oppressed Mm -hmm. in this way. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about hell or heaven without this idea of choice, just the bad stuff that happens to people? Um, The first thing that comes to mind is how much great art has come from that longing. Like, what? We're talking about people suffering. And it's not their own choice. It's the bad things that happen to them. Let me put this in perspective. Let's pretend that you survived in Japan, the nine-point earthquake, and that you lived at the epicenter, and that you barely escaped the tsunami by the skin of your teeth, but the rest of your family, they were washed out to sea and they perished. And you are living in the midst of destruction. You don't even have a home anymore. You don't have a family anymore. And you've got a nuclear reactor just a couple of miles away that keeps blowing up. And you want to talk about art? What on earth? Think of the songs that were sung by slaves. Like, swing low. Or... or uh, we s- You're avoiding the topic of evil here completely. Sang a song a couple weeks ago. Um, over my head, I hear laughter. There must be a God somewhere. So this longing for a better world or for some other place that where, th- where there are no tsunamis is a human ache that has been with us since the beginning. You're not answering the question, sir. And a lot of our thinking of heaven comes out of, God, please tell me this isn't the last word. Please, please tell me that this doesn't endlessly go on this way. Please, please tell me there's some rebirth, there's some rescue, there's, there's something that breaks this thing that we're in. Yeah, and... and you see this across. You mean breaks the uh, wheel of Brahman? Traditions. And we see it like with the tsunami. We see it again when, it, when it's a natural disaster that can't be blamed really on anybody. Um, and, you, and you have a tradition of 
the book of Romans, Apostle Paul speaks of this sense of nature is out of whack, my phrase. But we live in the midst of a creation that's groaning. Um, I think that's a beautiful sort of poetic way to explain it. Something is profoundly wrong. And we are desperate for justice, for restoration, for somebody somewhere to... Will there be justice? Do something about this. Yeah. That is a loud cell phone. <laughs> oh, my word. Yes. Hands up all over the place. Yes. Do I pick? Do you pick? You were picking. Go ahead. You pick, oh, you pick the next one. All right. No, you. <laughs> so it seems to me that universalists and annihilationists are trying to reconcile God's love with God's wrath. But can God be both loving and just? Yes. Um, and actually, that's something I explore... Something I explore in the book is there has been this, there has been this human, human longing and desire for, for God uh, to fix the world, essentially. To, to like say, no more greed. We can't have that here. No more exploitation of the weak and vulnerable. We can't have that here. So there has been this, like the prophet Amos, let justice roll like a river. Th this human ache to see those who would use their, who have corrupted their power, who are using coercive violence to force others into all sorts of destructive things, there has been this longing for justice. And I separate, so at the heart of the Jewish and then out of that the Christian understanding has been this longing for a day. Um, and you find it called the day of the Lord, you find it called the judgment day, you, you, you have this God saying, no longer here. If you want to do that, you can't do it here, out, or there, or... <laughs> something along those lines. You also have this side-by-side, -side, God's endless affirmation, God wants everybody to be saved. Psalm 22, all people will be at the great banquet. And so you have this, the possibility of every single person being rescued. You have this sort of longing. And We'll talk about this more in depth tomorrow, but he's taking these passages out of context. It make, In those banquet uh passages it says people from all nations will be there but it doesn't say all people will be there he's taking these way out of context then you have this longing for justice and they sit side by side and if you get rid of that tension um, the western mind loves the modern mind loves is either this or is it this which is it which are you are you left right conservative liberal that um, the, the Hebrew mind in the scriptures is okay with these things being true. Um, and one of the things I explore in the book is at the end of the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, is this picture of a city, this renewed, restored city, heaven and earth come together, now the dwelling of God is with people, and then there are people who aren't in it. And those are the people who choose to lie and murder and all those sorts of things. Right, and it says they're thrown into the lake of fire. <laughs> And the, and the smoke of their torment rises up forever, it says. Now watch what he does with this. Um, and there's this beautiful thing. It's almost like the writer, like another one of those sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, as he throws in this, oh, and there's a gate in the city, and it never shuts. That's because there's no evil anymore, but that's not a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You're seeing something there that ain't there. The reason why there's no need to shut the gate is because all the evil's gone. And it doesn't mean that that, oh, yeah, those people that are burning in the lake of fire... 
We left the door open for you. <sighs> huh? Like, can you go? You know what I mean? So it's sort of this picture, and then it just doesn't get resolved. It just sits there. And I think it's important that we let it sit there, um, side by side. I think we have room for one more question, maybe. You pick. I'm going to pick. All right. Um, how about somebody way in back? I have terrible... This person's being volunteered by the people around them. Yeah. That could be really I... good. That looks like it could be a good time yeah. waiting to happen. And he's wearing a hat, so let's go. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for coming. And um, just... So you haven't proposed to any of us that you're answering all the questions. And you, we know that this is not the first time that this issue has been dragged up to be discussed in intensity in the church history. Um, but you have dragged it up. You've been, you feel motivated, your community feels motivated too, and there are many people that probably feel motivated to reconsider ways that we've looked at heaven, hell, etc., or how we've communicated about it. My question to you is, what is your concern if we ignore talking about it, if we aren't to discuss current situations, views, ways it's portrayed, ways it's communicated around the world, if we ignore that, if we stop discussing this and leave it Status quo. What are your greatest concerns? That's an excellent question. That's a great question. Uh, man, there's so so many people who have had the same sort of question sort of in front of me. First off, millions and millions and millions of people. The fundamental way they were told about Jesus was God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, God loves you so much that God sent Jesus because God wants a relationship with you. And all you have to do is accept, trust, believe. If tonight you reject what I'm saying to you right now and you are hit by a car on the way home, which is always an awkward way, as Kanye West would say, awkward way to start a conversation. But uh, God would then have no choice but to punish you eternally with torment and fire and hell. So God would, in that split second, become a totally different being. Um, if there was an earthly father who was like that, this one moment, this the next, we would call the authorities. You know what's so funny is that's a straw man argument, because the biblical text makes it clear that we are already by nature objects of God's wrath that we have transgressed God's law and stand guilty before him. The story begins with God's justice. It begins with his just punishment of sin. Uh, well, how does the saying go, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and you qualify? The reason why he wants to save them is because if they get what they deserve, they will, well, go to hell. So the idea here is of an offended God. The idea begins with a God of justice whose law has been transgressed by a rebellious species known as humanity that he created. But he didn't create them in evil. The humanity rebelled collectively in Adam. But the good news is, is that Christ died for our sins and is offering full and complete pardon. The judge has cut a deal that will get you off scot-free. 
but it won't be that there won't be somebody punished because his justice demands that. Instead, the king himself has taken your place. In his kindness and his mercy, he has taken your place on the cross. And he's been punished in your place. And he's offering you full and complete pardon. See, when you start with God being kind and then God all of a sudden turning and being angry, the the gospel gets distorted. The biblical message is, is that we have an offended God. We have a just God that we've that we've rebelled against. We've sided with Satan against him. We have literally, uh, you know, rebelled to the point where we hate God and we cannot buy, We don't want to have anything to do with him. And as a result of our rebellion against our Creator, we have deserved His justice. When you begin there, the story gets different. But notice the way He tells the story. Well, if you have this, you know, God being kind to you, and then all of a sudden he turns into somebody else, well, we'd we'd put that, we'd call the authorities on that because that's a psycho, crazy guy. Mm Mm-hmm. Correct. And my experience as a pastor answering real questions of real people is lots of people have really, really toxic, dangerous, psychologically devastating images of God in their head. Images of a God who's not good. And so my experience has been lots of people, they go to church, they sing the songs, they tell the story, they hand out pamphlets, they really want... But, when, but to be honest, deep down, they have profound ambivalence about God. So we can talk about the Bible, we can talk about heaven, we can talk about hell. We can sort of discuss all of this, but at its core, the question behind the question behind the question, the mystery behind the mystery behind the mystery... They have a view of a God who's terrible that they can't even imagine being loving or wanting anything to do with. And over and over and over again, I've interacted with people who when you just sort of, okay, I realize you brought me this question, but what do you really think is behind this? Like, who is the God behind, what do you, you end up with them saying, actually, I, I think the universe might be a terribly awful place. It might be deeply unsafe. God might be like my abusive father. So I think it's really important. So he's putting God on trial is basically what it comes down to. Saying that God would be evil to send anybody to hell. That's the logical conclusion of what he's saying. That we talk about this because what happens is sometimes people are talking about good news and they're talking about Jesus and yet you're smelling the God behind it going... Whatever you're talking about, the God behind that, I can't trust, is not good. And in some senses, God being good is such a fresh, radical, new... Yet the God I can trust is the God who died for my sins. Again, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see you see what he's done here? In his retelling of the story, he's twisted all the facts. We're all a bunch of decent, good people. And it's God who's the one who's evil. 
evil because I'm smelling the God behind that idea of God sending people to hell. Yeah, that's an evil God, but I'm a good person. You see, Rob Bell's got it 180 degrees backwards. We're the sinners. We're the ungodly. We're the ones who've rebelled against God. God is good. He's just. He's merciful and he's kind. He's so merciful that I can trust him because, you see, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And I am somebody who is ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah, I can trust that God because I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm rebellious. I know that I deserve God's justice. I can trust Jesus because he's taken all of my sin and propitiated the wrath of God through his shed blood. I can trust that God. This other God that uh, Rob Bell's talking about, I don't even think he's a personal deity. He sounds like some kind of mystical Eastern kind, you know, force kind of thing. I trust. I mean, I, I don't even think trust is a category that exists when it comes to this other deity. But he got it a hundred. He got it one hundred and eighty degrees backwards. We're the sinners. We're the evil ones, not God. He thinks we're good, and that God is evil. That's the problem. Idea. Um, there is a woman who comes up to me every Sunday at our church, and she hands me a piece of paper. It's half of an eight by eleven sheet, and it's folded in half. And she walks away, and we smile, and I give her a hug, and we talk for a moment. And she walks away, and on the sheet of paper is a number. And it is the number of days since she last cut herself. And she told me about a year ago that every man she'd ever been with hit her. And so when she hears about love, her experience of life has not been love. And uh, just a couple weeks ago, she crossed the 365-day Mark, and so we brought her up on stage and just said, "Everybody, this is," and and uh, just I just introduced her and said, "This is," gave her name and just said, "She's celebrating one year without cutting herself," and it was a beautiful, beautiful moment to say the least. But but for her, it's like a whole new rewiring of her heart and mind is going on, like. And that's what all of this means to me. I love the discussion. I love the sort of speculation. I love all the different theories. But ultimately for me, it's like I don't want her to cut anymore. It's like that simple. I want to see her experience good news. I want her to experience love. I don't want her to live with these sort of images and messages she's been sent about who God is and what life is ultimately like and, and whether the universe is even a place that she can call home. I, I want her to give me another sheet of paper, and I want us to get to two years. So, so I realize in these questions, I stumble a bunch. I realize I wander all over the place. I realize I give answers in the dump. I realize that. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a scholar. Um, not very smart. But I do know that there is good news, and I've seen it in action. And that's, that's something that's worth talking about. Different gospel. The biblical gospel, the biblical good news is Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel in a nutshell is defined for us by God himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Have you heard anything about sinners repenting, being forgiven? No, you haven't. Thanks. Okay, that's the end of it. I think I'm just going to end it right there. What do you think? I need to get your feedback. I'd love for you to send me your feedback and your comments regarding what you heard Rob Bell say. Was that biblical Christianity? Did that sound anything like what the eyewitnesses said that Jesus taught? Anything like what the apostles taught? Or anything like what the church fathers taught? You tell me. I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.